Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Ben Dreyfus. Now, Ben uh, used to work at Mother Jones. He was uh, head of audience acquisition there for a long time. Uh, he's very smart about internet economics uh, as it relates to journalism, at least. I don't know about uh, other parts of the internet and the economics therein. Uh, he is the author of the Calm Down Substack. I, I subscribe. I quite enjoy it. Um, uh, and we, we, we have a lot to talk about today about the world of advertising online. Ben, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Sonny. So the reason I wanted to get you on, uh, was very specifically to talk about, uh, what happened to the world of journalism, uh, and, and the advertising that kind of sustained it for, for a while and then not at all. Um, because I, I, I feel like we are headed into, uh, a very weird era of TV and streaming where all of, of the streamers realize that they cannot make enough money just by selling subscriptions. So they all want to sell advertisements, uh, which is going to lead to a variety of issues. Um, and we've seen this play out in other industries before, again, mostly journalism and how that, uh, that kind of impacted, uh, what happened to the world of uh, magazines and newspapers and websites. Um, so I, I feel like it's useful to get some background information here. Yep. <laughs> ben, tell me about your life uh, as an audience acquisition uh, a person who also uh, then turned the eyeballs into dollars or tried to turn eyeballs into dollars. <laughs> right. So I got into journalism the way people normally do, which is I failed uh, to become a movie star and then ended up running a Twitter account for CNET.com. And when that is your job and you are not allowed to do anything else because you're in your early 20s, all you can do is work on those tweets and you can play with the language to see how you can get the links to go up and the engagement to go up. And if you do that long enough, you sort of learn about these things about how people read and how they engage. And then what happens once you've gotten very good at that is you start doing it larger on, on other parts of the, the organizations. And eventually, after I had tricked enough people to read, you know, reviews of Nokia phones they would never buy, I went to Mother Jones to do the exact same thing about politics. And what allows all of this to happen is a, an incredible revolution in data about 12 years ago where you started to just have way more um, ability to track reader behavior than ever before. And that coincides with this moment where there's also these vast increases in, um, you know, the number of people from social media clicking on news stories. And this total thing revolutionizes journalism and makes it so that you're basically optimizing for a, an audience far bigger than has ever existed for as of news consumers but also one that is less intentional about it. And so every little key is sort of a, you know, cognitive bias trick. And basically, I was really good at it. And then I got burned out on it. And now I write a Substack. Well, let's let's talk about how we got to that point in the first place, because uh, you 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 got into this a little bit in your um, in your uh, the, the newsletter that you wrote that made me want to talk to you about this. But what happened to the world of Internet advertising that kind of uh, knocked the main financial pillar out of um, the the legs holding up journalism. Right. So, I mean, if you 20 years ago or so, there was the original like 
Craigslist revolution. Craigslist takes all these classifieds that had basically been subsidizing journalism for 100 years. Because journalism has never made money by itself. It's always been, you know, uh, ads for hookers in the back of the magazine and things like that. And then Craigslist takes all that away and it takes out one of the legs of the stool. And then they have, you know, a huge panic attack about how the ad market is bad. The digital ad market appears and it pays less, but it is there. And then at the same time, as social media grows up, I mean, you know, makes landfall, those digital dollars all go to Facebook and Google. And so the value of every impression for those ads starts to go down. And at the same time, what that means is you just need more of them. And so it becomes more important that you optimize right and more important that you get as absolutely many followers, I mean, readers as possible, because each is worth increasingly less. And that just has profound changes to like how important it is to actually be data driven. And that, you know, justifies a whole bunch of changes to um, that happened to digital media. When you were when you're looking at uh, audience acquisition and uh, getting clicks and all that sort of thing, what are the most important things for you, the data guy? Like, what do you look what's what's your ideal visitor to uh, a website that is generating revenue based on advertising? Uh, I mean, the ideal visitor. So at the top of the funnel is what you're getting from, you know, social media. And the ideal ones are a wealthy person, which means they use an iPhone that also has money to spend. So, I mean, the lives in the United States that has, uh, you know, clicked around a lot of other sites and, and is, is likely to fall for ads, which they can all track on Facebook, and then likes your um, brand or your story enough to read further down into it to, uh, you know, trigger as many impressions as possible. But also, the further they read into a story, the more likely they are to take a more intentional act, like actually following you on social media or subscribing to your magazine, or donating, or something like that. And so the most important, um, you know, reader behavior that you want, the most valuable one, is someone who is a repeat viewer who reads almost to the end. No one reads to the end, but almost to the end. I like that. I like that because it's uh, it's it's absolutely true from everything I know. And I know very little about audience acquisition and audience behavior. Uh, but I do know that nobody reads to the end of anything. Uh, and this is but this was also true in print. Right. Every time the the general rule in print, I used to work at the Weekly Standard, which was an actual print magazine, you know, 42 to 48 uh, pages uh, per per issue. And if you looked at. Uh, if you looked at audience behavior, what you found was every time you asked somebody to move to the next page, you lost 20% of readers, 25% of readers, something like that. That that transfers over to the world of Slate, et cetera, where like every time you click next page, you lose 40% of readers or or something like that. Um, the, the number of people who read to the end has always been very small. Right. And I mean, you're talking about also like in print where, you know. Let's say you ran the New York Times in 1973 or something like that. There's a couple of ways to tell how your paper is being consumed. You know, there's your subscriber number, which is sort of not direct to any one single editorial choice. You know, it has to do with affinity built up over time. But there's also newsstand sales. And you can look at your newsstand sales and say, like, all right, it spiked on Tuesday and it went down on Thursday. And that is almost entirely a function of the A1 headline. You know, war breaks out in Israel. People buy that one. But one on Thursday that says like rain coming or some crime done in the Bronx. No one's buying that because of that. 
it goes up and down and you can decide, you can make a lot of decisions about like what we should have on the front page. This tells you absolutely nothing about A2, B1, B12, C12, D15. All of those things you can only really interpret through some tiny focus groups or reader feedback, but mainly editorial sort of gut, you know, the feeling I sure think they're doing it. And what the internet did with all of these tools is reveal actually like how much people are reading C2. And the answer is, in most cases, never. <laughs> you know, it's just, it just, it sort of takes away the illusions that you were able to project onto the readers because there was no real way of tracking it, um, you know, efficiently. Yeah. I mean, I like, this is something I've always kind of wondered uh, and, and don't really know the answer to, but do we, do we assume that the, uh, the online readership numbers uh, more or less correspond to the, you know, uh, physical hard copy numbers with, with something like a newspaper? So I think in your newsletter, you, you talked specifically about like the dance critic, right? At the, at the New York Times or the LA Times or whatever. Like it turns out nobody's actually reading the dance critics uh, reviews of the new ballet or whatever on uh, on the web. Do we then assume that also you know nobody's reading it on in the in the hard copy? I think in the beginning of all of this, no, you wouldn't want to make that assumption because the internet demographic was actually different than maybe the general masses. You know, the, there was a more online, younger, maybe Gen X, whatever, blah 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 blah. But n that's not true anymore. You know, everyone is online now. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, Osama bin Laden was probably online before he died. Like, every, everyone is online making jokes. I, mean, I guess he probably wasn't. There was no connection there. But, like, um, you know, everybody in the world is on the internet. And so like, that demographic now has matched up. And I think, like, what, what happens in all of these decisions? Everyone, whenever something succeeds on one platform, that's always one person, basically, at a company who owns that platform, you know? And they'll go into the meeting and sort of brag about their spike, you know, on whatever it is. And the people who own the other platforms will a little resentful and say like oh, well you know huh that only happened because on facebook they're all idiots or on snapchat they're all children or whatever it is um or they'll say like direct mail is is you know different than print and da -da 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 -da. newsstand sales are different than subscribers what you basically have found out over the last 12 years as we've just gotten so much data about user behavior is that basically there are changes on the margins but in reality like we're talking about the way people read, and they actually don't change that much. People sort of are the same wherever they go. Uh, uh, in general, marginally, there are changes, but there's just very little reason to actually believe that, like, if you never read anything, a, a subject on the web, that you actually are interested in reading it, uh, you know, in print. Because, like, uh, essentially, the other key difference is that in print, like you described, basically those stories, those A2 stories, C2 stories, those are just the next thing, you're just flipping it over. They're not individually really selling themselves to you to at least see the headline and, and go that further. On the web, every story is detached from the brand. And so every story goes into your Facebook feed and every story has to do the job of that A1 headline of making you take this proactive act. Um, and what you're basically saying is that, you know, the intentionality is saying that people, even if they were reading them before, they were reading them out of, you know, laziness and they didn't really care. They weren't intentionally acting on it. Well, this is, I mean, this is really interesting to me because I am a, uh, I, I am a obsessive hard copy subscriber, uh, of magazines, right? I get, I get the Atlantic, I get the, I get New York magazine. Um, uh, I get, 
I don't actually get the New Yorker anymore. They they charge too much for the actual print copy. So I just I have. But the uh, but one thing I like to do when I get these is just to sit down and and I will read them back to front in in the most cursory sort of way. I will look for the stories that I actually want to read. I will read them and I will move on to the next one, um, which is not intentional, but is extremely useful because it helps with discovery. And I, I, I wonder where that discovery, uh, I mean, I guess now we all kind of self-curate with Twitter and our Facebook feeds or whatever. Uh, so the discovery comes from other people saying, hey, read this. Yeah, and I mean, that's exactly right. I think that like one of the things you lose, right, is the, you know, discovery of necessity that you have when you're reading a print thing at a doctor's office and you have literally nothing else to do except just flip through and actually discover, wait, you know, I do, I'm interested in the New York Philharmonic or whatever it is, um, or like the water crisis. On the web, you, it's curating, you're curating, your friend group is curating, but also the algorithms are optimizing for your own behavior. They, so you are even subconsciously doing it. So everything that you do want, it's giving more of that. And it's being, over time, much more shy about giving you things it thinks you want or that it considers risky. And because if you, you know, disengage or something, those are negative signals that it sends to the stories and all of those things. So it doesn't want to risk it by really giving you too much stuff that you haven't expressed some desire in. And all of this is a vicious cycle until eventually there is nothing else except epistemic closure. Like you're just getting the exact same things over and over again. Well, this is we're, we'll get to this in a second. But I want to I want to just cycle back to something you just said when you say it doesn't want to risk it. When you say risk it, you mean risk de-engaging with Twitter or yeah, Facebook. Yeah, mainly um, mainly all of this is Facebook. Like uh, Twitter and all the other ones don't actually drive traffic to me, news organizations. So basically, the 90% of all of this is the way, the way the Facebook algorithm works. But like when you log on to Facebook, if you have done that the last 20 years, <laughs> the news feed, you know, populates all of these different things, these little posts from your friends and your photos and everything like that. And I think of it like driving down a highway where each one of those is a billboard. And, you know, it's a billboard that you can click on and drive off the highway. You can pull over for necessity because you see an ad that actually says, I do need to take a piss. It, it, it matches up the right time with you. Then there's billboards that you don't care about. There are posts that you just couldn't care less about. But then there's really good billboards that will make you change your plans. You know, you're pulling off the highway to go see this amusement park because everyone has to. It's just too beguiling. Um, and what you don't want to have happen is to have people pass your billboard because Facebook then will take that as a not an actual negative reaction, but they'll take it as a sign that this is not good, that, that people are looking at it and the rate goes down of clicking. And Facebook doesn't want that to happen too much because people don't scroll forever. Eventually, they're going to click off and not come back. You know, it, it wants to give you things that you're actually engaging with. Um, and so there's no incentive really to be risky with that because it just harms your ability to then reach those audiences again. So uh, the the negative, the ultimate negative effect of all this uh, we see in I, I want to say like the upworthy age is kind of the the nadir of this, right? Where you wind up with a bunch of engagement farming websites um, that uh, then inspire similar behavior from essentially news outlets, right? I mean, it, it's not exactly the same. You know, the New York Times isn't doing seventeen. Disney princess characters that you remember from your childhood, but do you remember them exactly like this? Like, but it's but it's similar sorts of tricks and and other things, and also like just the overwhelming glut of content drowns out the actual good stuff, right? 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes the good stuff does rise up. You know, that's totally things. There's good things that go on. But like, you're absolutely right. That era of um, Upworthy and, you know, a couple of other ones like that, that really were before Facebook had done anything to moderate that. You know, it's really as pure as gullibility. You know, it's just playing on that. Facebook hated Upworthy so much that they actually like changed the algorithm to mm-hmm. hurt that, that famous type of headline that they used to do. And Upworthy was, you know, gone in eight months or whatever it was. Um, but those other companies that you're talking about, like the Washington Post is a great example. When Bezos bought the Washington Post, they actually sort of really did lean into writing for the web in a way that print papers really weren't doing. The New York Times especially wasn't doing. And, you know, the headlines got more conversational. The pieces got more... Um, you know, quick, more turnarounds, more casual. And it worked really well in terms of that. Because basically, you're writing in a style that actually is more compelling to people in that medium. The New York Times has also started to do that a bit more, but they stay away. But like, you're absolutely right that Upworthy and places like that sort of saw an insight, like people are interested in blowjobs. And so they put out blowjobs, you know, that's what they did. But the Washington Post, the New York Times, and all of these other places that are better than it don't go as far as blowjobs. That's going to have reputational risk. So they're actually going to put edging out there. You know, they're going to hint at the blowjob. They're going to somehow come identify this insight and then like get close to it, but not actually do it. And that's what basically happens. All and it's the thing that I think is that I think people forget the most is that like this has choices has consequences for news story selection, right? Like, everyone knows that. You start covering things that readers want or you think they're going to engage with. But it also has it for the story structure and the way it's written. Because the actual analytics that came out about, you know, 12 years ago and really dominated this industry show you to a very finite level, like, where people stop reading and what those moments look like and what you need to include so that that doesn't happen. And Editors can interpret that and hand on those notes, or in some places, you know, some places show the writers themselves that data, and you can't see that data and not act on it. It's like the Ark of the Covenant. If you want to live, you have to avoid it. Like, you, you have to avert your eyes, because it just informs everything that you do, and it, 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 has, it has just deep consequences for the way people write stories, present stories, assign stories, all of it, because now it's, you're so aware of what the readers want. Yeah. And this is a we'll, we'll get to this in a minute, because I, I do think this is the ultimate risk for the streamers, which is and this is what you uh, kind of wrote about in your in your newsletter, the 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 Faustian bargain that comes with understanding all and knowing too much about your data and what what people want and, and the risks therein. Um, before we get there, though, let's let's uh, let's talk a little more about how ads and subscriptions, subscribers kind of interact with each other, right? Because, you know, the, 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 the long-time assumption on print media in particular was the 25 cents that you pay for your newspaper covers the newsprint and uh, the paper itself, and that's about it. That, that, that's not how uh, newspapers make their money. They make their money via the advertisements, and, and they, that's how they generate their revenue. Um, but obviously that all changes in an online first world, which, uh, you know, emphasizes audience size rather than the number of people you can get to give you five bucks a month. 
Right. So so that digital ad market was just never as strong as the print ad market, right? Like those those things that you get to put an ad online, it's never going to pay the what it used to pay. I mean, what it used to be for a New York Times ad. Um, and so it was always more important to have more eyeballs. And also you could track it. I mean, to an extent, some of it is a lot of, a lot of the data about ad impressions is fake, but there's some data as opposed to none. Um, and so basically those are paying certain things, but it's not paying that much. And so all of these companies decided they needed to find other revenue streams. So you have, you know, some places that do affiliate links and try to like get you to buy things from Amazon and stuff like, you know, CNET and the wire cutter do all that. Um, but then everyone's realizing that, you know, this isn't going to do it. You really need to get them to subscribe, to put out, you know, direct money transfers. And some places, there's different ways of trying that, you know, paywalls. and da -da 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 -da. But a lot of places were terrible at that. You know, they found out that that actually people are not don't need to subscribe to all like, you know, the Denver Post, even though they live mm -hmm. in Philadelphia. The only pl places that really succeeded at that on these large scales was the Times and you know, Wall Street Journal and all of these places that did that. And Basically, it became sort of an urgent imperative to get this steady stream of income from a subscription that people are too lazy and stupid to ever cancel, like a gym membership. Um, and it's like raises the floor. But it, not everyone was able to do it. That, that's the, the, the key part. Like, and now we've entered this world where the social media audiences have dropped. So the actual eyeballs have dropped. All of this has dropped. And, you know, that's a good thing, maybe. Some people think it's a good thing. The way it influences, like the perverse incentives are gone, but it hasn't been replaced with anything. You know, there's no new way for the Idaho statesman to really like become profitable again because there is no the classifieds aren't coming back. The like the digital ads aren't going to make more sense. The audiences aren't going to suddenly explode. You're going to need something, and it hasn't happened yet. So it's sort of like people cheering the end of the social media revolution, but then it's like, well, uh, what less? Well, where did the audience go? Where where did the did, where did readers go? Where did the eyeballs disappear to? I mean, journalism never made money. You know, like it, it's it's never in history made any money. So the well, audience of news, what? Well, that's not that's not entirely true. I mean, journalism actually was a fairly profitable industry right back when. Again, the, we're talking about the before times, the right. the age of uh, classified ads. The age when you had three broadcast networks, right? Or, uh, you know, you had um, uh, local radio dominating that 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 space. Uh, there was a time when advertising could sustain an actual viable business. Enterprise. Sure. These businesses made money, but the New York, no, people weren't. It was through ancillary things. You know, the audience for pure journalism, for reading it, is just not that large. Right, you know, like it, right. it's never been enough to sustain it. That's why even, you know, the Times and everyone else has soft news. You know, we have advice columns and, you know, all of these fun little style things. It's because the people who actually are dedicated to reading news is just not that big. And it's never been that big. And so you have to find other ways of sustaining it. And so where did the audience go is such an interesting question because, like, the audience to journalism that happened 12 years ago or so 10 years ago was just more people reading news than ever before because they were people actually trying to look at photos of their kids but then these billboards kept getting thrown at them on facebook and so they ended up clicking and reading slate or they ended up reading you know other jones um and that was a huge conversion of oh my god we're getting people to care who've never cared um and so it's those people those incidental news consumers who are basically gone and you know, some of them stayed, but most of them left. And to the extent that those people are getting that filled, it's just with other content on social media. 
you know, all of this was flattened. They were just seeing things that were incidental to them. Now they're seeing it, you know, on TikTok and da, 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 da. And some of that is aggregated news, so they're still getting it. But in general, it's just that they're getting other types of media to fill this hole in their soul. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that all makes sense to me. That all makes, I, I, that all kind of sounds... I don't I haven't been on Facebook on a regular way in seven or eight years. I I avoid it as much as I can. Uh, But that definitely feels uh, right in terms of where traffic is coming from. And the idea of news just as another piece of content um, uh, that that kind of came in front of them, Um, which brings me, I guess, to to you know, the, the Hollywood aspect of this, of, of this, which is that right now the unions are striking, uh, the SAG and the WGA screen actors guild, writers guild of America, they are striking. One of the things that they want is access to more data. They want more data from Netflix so they can, uh, prove, you know, which shows are popular and who deserves to get residuals from that. And, um, you uh you you argue i think fairly persuasively that this is a terrible terrible idea if the thing that you care about is making stuff that is good as opposed to stuff that is watched yeah i mean the the implication i think of the like the demand to know how many people are watching your art you know it, it it's reasonable it makes sense to you like on an intuitive level you're like yeah of course i want to know how i want to know how i'm doing um it, it makes perfect sense. But the implication, I think, of like the conspiratorial belief about why this data is being held back from them is that these numbers are huge and they would just they're, they're trying to send, you know, less residuals. And if they showed the numbers, they would have to pay more and it would, you know, reveal all of these things. But I think that the opposite is actually true. These numbers are incredibly small. There are there are five hundred and ninety nine scripted television shows made last year. Five hundred and ninety nine. Like. I watch more television than any 12 people combined, and I could maybe name 30, you know, <laughs> like these other ones are so low that they can't really be justified. Uh, the budgets can't be justified. And if they put those numbers out there, they'd be embarrassed. The executives would be embarrassed. People would, you know, investors would be mad at them for wasting all this money. The pressure for them to just do a different job would be immense. And the writers would be sad. They, it would be harder to get people to do these shows, which no one's watching. And the writers be less enthusiastic about doing it. Well, well, the other thing here is that there's there's kind of a a, an almost I I, I, this is going to sound dismissive. I don't I don't want it to. But there's almost a lottery mentality to a lot of the discussion that I hear, which is, you know, everyone looks at a guy like Aaron Paul, uh, who played Jesse Pinkman on Breaking Bad. And he's on he's on the picket line and he says, I didn't see a penny from all of the uh, the the reviews that Breaking Bad got on Netflix. You know, that 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 never none of that ever showed up in my residuals. You know, I didn't I didn't get uh, I didn't get rewarded for being in a huge, massive hit on Netflix. And on the one hand, I understand the frustration there. I understand the frustration of the Squid Games folks who were like, you know, we had billions of hours watched and, you know, this is a hugely popular show all around the world. And we have made our, you know, $15,000 or whatever, and we're not getting any more than that. And I understand I understand the frustration there. At the same time, for every Squid Game or Breaking Bad, as you see, there's a hundred shows that that are watched by virtually no one. And my my and this is my fear that 
if you if you start looking at if you start breaking down what is actually being watched uh, and rewarding based on that, then you're going to wind up with just much, much less stuff. You're going to have fewer, fewer writers employed, fewer actors employed, um, fewer IATSE guys employed, uh, you know, running, you know, lighting rigs and stuff because there just there isn't an actual demand for a lot of the things that are out there. Right, exactly. I mean, the the thing about I think it was 2022 where the WGA actual like the, those writers took in more money than ever before, you know, it, the, in um and they gave WGA more um what's it called um what what dues. Pay, dues, right? And it like that wasn't because they were all suddenly making more money, which they obviously weren't. Like some some people make a lot of money, obviously, but most don't. But there's just more writers. You know, there's more people making shows because there's so many more shows than ever. And that's not, you know, doesn't really mean much for the one person who's looking and going like, I didn't make any money on my streaming show. But in terms of the industry, the amount of money getting pumped into like writing in Hollywood, it's higher than ever. Or it was a few years ago. I guess it's now declined a little bit. But that's a big deal for a lot of people. And it's also completely understandable that it's not the key concern of any individual writer. Um and I, I guess, like, I, I, I think that it makes perfect sense when I hear those stories about Breaking Bad, like, that is ridiculous. And it makes sense that, like, if the rates, if they made, figured out the residuals right, and they could raise the rates enough so that, you know, people are fairly compensated when they're hits, that makes sense. It's just that that also means it's not going to affect like 90% of these shows, which are watched by eight people. <laughs> right, right. I mean, this is this is the thing is that like I, I it's funny, I, I probably am coming across on this podcast more antagonistic to the unions than I actually am. Usually I am very antagonistic to unions as a, <laughs> a cold blooded conservative. But I but it, it, this is one of the one of the few strikes where I've I, I, I look at what's happening and I, I see the studios have changed the game. They don't want to they don't want to pay what uh you know they they were paying for broadcast shows or cable shows um they don't want to get sucked into another cycle of like we're you know we're we're gonna get we're gonna be on the hook for payments forever for these things um uh and that you know i like i don't blame the writers and the actors for being like we need we need to be we we have created the things that have made you billions of dollars netflix please give us a small piece of the, you know, of the success there. I think that's totally reasonable. Um, but as you say, like, there's a lot of stuff that's just not going to be affected by that at all. And if you really start breaking it down by what is watched, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a bloodbath. Right. I mean, I, I to go back to like the news metaphor. So when you look at a publication that is large, but also not infinitely large, so not the AP and not the New York Times. Okay. Let's say like, the Atlantic or a magazine, you know, of significant size, but not when you look at the stories that that publication puts out there, you should be able to identify why that story was written. You know, the motive behind spending that resource should fall into like a virtuous bucket. You know, maybe their impact, maybe it's just really important journalism. Like you're really, it's what they talk about, you know, all the presidents, men, this type of thing. And the other virtuous bucket is it's not any of that. It's not impact. It's just a story people want. It's I know readers want this, and so I'm going to have someone make it so that it will increase the audience, perhaps of the other virtuous bucket, you know, later on. Then there's other little minor ones, you know, like beat sweetening and all these things like that. But what you notice when you look at, I don't want to name any one particular publication, but just generally online, is that a lot of stories don't fall in those buckets. A lot of stories are being produced because of muscle memory or because of like 
they sort of think they should, or because social media has created this kind of broadcast model where people feel a constant need to put out 12 stories a day. And no one is going to read a bunch of those, but they just feel like they have to. Um, and those are basically wastes of time. You know, th that is a waste of an ROI for that organization to have someone spend time on a story that they know isn't going to push anything forward. And also no one's going to read. Um, it's just, just a waste. And what's happened in the streaming thing is, is similar. You know, there are a lot of shows that they do not actually think have a chance of breaking out. And they actually probably don't even think they're artistically great. You know, they don't think that these are just the best story in the world. We need to put it out there so that it can win a Peabody or history can, you know, notice. They're just doing it because, well, other places are putting stuff out and we need to have a steady stream of new content. And that content, they feel like is a ticking clock. So don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Here's a bunch of dog shit. And that is just a huge majority of content. And that stuff, there is no good business reason for. Like, they, it, and that will get just absolutely leveled. Like, it, when, you know, they're forced to actually hand, look at the data and, and actually, you know, handle all of that pressure. Yeah. I, this is a, a thing. I, so I, I mentioned this to you when we were talking about doing the show i have i one one thing that is very frustrating to me as a uh, as somebody who subscribes to a lot of streaming channels uh and has uh been watching prices kind of tick up for the ad free tiers is that they are they the streaming companies are trying to force people into the ad uh subsidized bucket because they can get a higher average revenue per user if they get people to pay six bucks a month uh, plus the advertising revenue versus $15 a month and no advertising revenue, right? This is essentially why Netflix got rid of their uh, $10. They got rid of their $9.99 tier because they, they were just like, we cannot make that. That's not how we're going to make money. We're going to make money by charging a little bit less and, and having ads or making people pay 20 bucks a month. Uh, but the reason they're doing this is because the 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 actual... I, I, the way I described it to you was the dark matter. The dark matter of streaming is not uh, the buzzy new shows. You know, something like Succession does okay. It's it does okay, but it is absolutely dwarfed by The Big Bang Theory on HBO Max. Right? the The Big Bang Theory, Friends, The Office. Uh, these shows are the things that are actually kind of secretly driving most of the eyeball watching, and they are not monetized properly because people don't sign up for people don't say I'm going to go sign up for HBO Max because I want to watch five hours of the Big Bang Theory every uh, night. That's not what they do that they it, they just watch it because it happens to be there. They don't they don't say they very few people are like I'm signing up for HBO Max or Max whatever it's called now because I want to watch Friends for six hours. Uh, but that's what they do. Um, and the only way to actually get the to recoup the cost of the massive amounts of money that those shows cost. I mean, I think I think it, Warner Brothers spent like a billion dollars on Friends for 2 years or something like that. The only way to the only way to recoup that cost is by selling ads. Yeah, I mean, I do think that there actually are probably a number of people who have signed up for Max just for Friends. You know, like there's there's some very big cases like Seinfeld maybe. You know, like yeah. where maybe that really did do it. But you're right that like a good example is Suits. You know, Suits, I've, I watched every episode of Suits when I was on USA because I'm an idiot. And now Suits, like, came on and, and it's just the most popular show on Netflix. But 
No one signed up for Netflix to watch Suits, okay? They didn't even have that many people when it was actually on. It's just that these people go home and turn on Netflix, and it was there, and it was good enough. And it has 120 episodes or something, so you can watch it forever. And that is fundamentally sort of like a... It's not really what happened on cable. It's more like a, a broadcast model. Like, the famous thing about, you know... ABC, NBC, and the broadcast channels for a long time was that they didn't want to make your favorite show. They wanted to make shows that you were okay with. You know, that you would turn it on and then not change the channel and watch the next one and the next one and the next one because they were fine. They weren't offensive to your sensibilities. Cable channels and particularly HBO wanted to like, you know, make make your favorite show. You had to proactively, you were going to stay watching FX all day. So you had to like, mm-hmm. like the one a lot. Um and that was sort of what streaming has been for a long time, that they were like, we need your favorite shows that you'll subscribe, and then you can go off and do whatever you want. And what they've found with these libraries, with these dark content, dark matter that you're describing, is that that might be true to an extent that people you know, sign up for something because of House of Cards or whatever it is. But then once they're there, they actually also want the broadcast thing, where they can just watch the next thing as long as it's a good enough. And... It's hard, I think, for people to sort of like wrap their minds around that change in intentionality. That a lot of it is, it, it's not, they're not seeking it out so much as they're, you know, comfortable with it. Good enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, in, to, to bring it back to your billboard analogy, the, the, the billboard, once you're done with your episode of succession, right? The, the billboard is watch this, friends, or, you know, watch this, watch, I mean, I, I don't know how, what the overlap between succession and Big Bang Theory audiences is i would assume it's probably not enormous but you know like yeah maybe it's like watch this episode of the sopranos or watch rome you know uh, the i don't know it's it's uh i i i mostly just look at this and get frustrated from uh my perspective as a person who hates advertisements because i can just feel the inexorable push of all of us into the advertising bucket and i resent it i I really resent it I mean, the, the problem with the advertising, like the reason why they can even do this sort of right now is because, you know, the Hollywood ad market is is not maybe not as strong as it once was, but like it's much stronger than the digital journalism ad market ever was, you know. So they're able to look at like the funnel right now for streamers is is different. It's the ads are more valuable, like you said. So they don't want you to just be the pay for the most expensive version with no ads. They want you to do this middle one that also gets ads. So it creates this other environment. And basically, as long as the ad market is really strong, that sort of makes financial sense, I get. But one thing we know from media is that you know, ad markets are in inexorable decline. You know, it's a little it's a little it's it's very dangerous to put all of your eggs in that basket. Yeah, well, I mean, this is and this is the one 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 area where I do kind of I disagree with you a little bit in the sense that I, I do think that the advertising market for TV, for streamers, et cetera, maintains a. um maintains a little more power because the uh, the content is exclusive right it's not like the new york times where you or the you know the 17 different newspapers all publishing the same story and you can just pick which whichever one you want to watch there's stuff you have to go to to watch uh there is uh there is something to be said for the value of video ads versus just static billboard ads and also like frankly if you if you create a situation where they're simply unskippable then they are more valuable to the advertisers totally i mean absolutely now i mean uh, eventually they they we don't know what the future holds and it's just that the the few these ads have never really been going up but 
uh, basically, I mean, I hundred percent agree with with all of, all of what you just said about it, and that's sort of why Hollywood can do this right now. But one thing that this this data revolution means, like presumably some of this confidential data that let's say Peacock has, okay, Peacock not only knows you know that you watch Doctor Death, but not some other Peacock show. I don't I don't know any other Peacock shows, but you watched you know Law and Order SVU or whatever it is. But they also know the exact moment that you stopped watching it. They know down to the second. And they know everything about you. They don't know your name because it's anonymized, probably. Um, but they know, you know, your user behavior, your length of service, your a bunch of things you've also done on the web. And they can decide, you know, who is the most valuable user for advertisers. Someone with money, they can blah, 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 blah. And they can then see when those users stopped watching. And they can optimize for those users to the, you know, exclusion sort of of other users. And basically you get this race to the bottom where people are actually targeting one specific type of person and everything begins to look alike when you are then trying to sell things for the most, you know, valuable users. And it's just a very dangerous game where everything ends up sounding like Swedish pop music. People do love Swedish pop music. Like that is responding to a market reality. But there's also other people who like, you know, country music and other types of things. And those things just get less bandwidth when the emphasis is more directly about um, being able to sell the most valuable user. Well, this and this is also I mean, this is how you end up getting a channel like Discovery Plus, where you have uh, 15 different home improvement shows that are all virtually interchangeable that you can just be like, oh, well, I'm, I'm done watching Flipper Flop. Let's turn on um, Good Bones. You know, it's, it's the same sort of idea. Yeah, 100%. I mean, and you also see it on Netflix, right? Like, they'll have one Triple Frontier will do well, and then there'll be 17 knockoffs of Triple Frontier. And that's like, they've always done that. Hollywood's always done that. You know, there's Die Hard on an oil rig and all of that stuff. But this just, it's so much more content being made, so much more money, and also so much more pressure since these companies are actually not making money right now. You know, like, the profit margins for all of these studios have dropped massively as they've shifted to streamers. And, you know, only a few of them even make money at the moment on streaming. Yeah. And so it just raises the like pressure level of all of that so that they really can't, you know, risk more. They can't, they can't, they can't do what artists like to do, which is, you know, try things. And the thing that I also think is sort of lost a bit is that everyone knows that writers and actors and directors think of themselves as artists, but Hollywood executives, not all of them, but they also like tell themselves a nice story about how, they at least are in the art business. You know, they're helping artists do it. And a lot of them are artists. You know, they, they're giving the right notes, doing all of this, and they're producers. Da, 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 da. They aren't selling, you know, widgets. They think of themselves in this nice way. And so that's why they've still sort of avoided doing things that you would really do if you were 100% trying to just, like, meet the audience demands. They, they want to have prestige reasons. Like, Apple TV purely exists they can go to the academy awards right like you know like they're 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 not making money on those shows and when you reveal all of that data and show that people aren't actually watching it it just will increase the pressure for those things not to exist anymore it will make everything more streamlined because there needs to be more of an roi because actually that's what like these are companies they need to make money and that's inevitable i think but revealing the data is just going to hasten it yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you'll still end up with the, you know, essentially the HBO style prestige shows, because those are I mean, those are 
very good for audience acquisition. That is still an important uh, angle here. But I, I, yeah, it's uh, there's so much stuff that's made that it just does not work. Because also, like, I think, like, you know, I subscribe to Disney Plus, which, like, I don't have children. (laughs) I I log into Disney Plus, like, seven times a year or something, you know, and it was because of certain Marvel shows I don't need to watch. But, like, I'm not going through the Disney catalog. Basically, I haven't quit it because I'm lazy. And I have a bundle with ESPN and Hulu. Yeah. But if I didn't have that bundle, I, I would have done that. And I think that what a lot of these streamers have learned is that a lot of people do actually, there is churn. You know, people will, once they had to sign up for 12 of these a month, say, oh, you know, I only watched one show on Paramount Plus and it's not coming back for two years. I'll turn off the, the subscription. Yeah. And that just completely changes the entire idea of, well, we only need to have one show that you really love and you'll just stay with us for a year because actually you'll stay for six weeks and then cancel it. Yeah. No, the killer the killer app that's out there that's waiting to be made is the automatic churn app. The one that the one that like knows exactly what you've signed up for and cancels for you and brings it back when you're when you're ready to watch again. Like that is that's the thing that will end up being the most valuable. I mean, you, we should copyright that one, trademark that idea. Like that <laughs> I think I, I, I swear I, I swear I've seen something like it, but it really needs to be automated. It really needs to be like, all right, we're just cutting you off. You've watched all of Suits. No more Netflix for you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Capital One should have that as like a feature on their credit card. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, I always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked. If there's anything folks should know about the world of advertising and journalism, advertising uh, on TV, you know, audience acquisition. This is this is your this, this is your expertise. What, what should folks know about? I think that you've asked a lot of good questions. I think that, like, basically, in general, the Hollywood side of this, it's just, it is going to happen no matter what. And so I don't mean that, like, you know, there's a reason they should really hide all these numbers forever, because there's just already increasing pressure on all of them to make money. But I think the one thing that sort of gets lost in the social media way a lot of this discussion goes, because the writers and the unions have been so good at social media, is that basically it does sort of exist in a world where these companies are making money, but these companies are actually totally fucking stupid right now. (laughs) Like they have burned like the greatest business plan in the world in cable networks. Okay. With like, you know, affiliate fees and all of those things. And they moved over to this other one that only one company has made money at called Netflix. And like these people are burning money and they're fucking stupid. And it's just an interesting moment to have this all happen. But again, like I, I support all the writers, man, essentially. But like, isn't it is true that they're not making they're not making a lot of money right now? Yeah, I mean, this is this is why this is one reason why I I really liked the suggestion. I think it was SAG uh, put out to have a third party company, uh, somebody like um, uh, oh God, I forget Parrot Analytics. Uh, look at the look at the relative popularity of all the shows. And instead of like having the actual numbers of, you know, X thousands, X millions, uh, X billions of hours watched. Instead, we're like, this show is 10 times more popular than this show, which itself is five times more popular than this show. And we're going to divide the revenue up that way. Uh, that that actually seemed like a really good compromise to me. And I don't know why the studios didn't jump at that and just be like, sure, that. Yeah. Third party relative ranking, yeah, that that works for us. 
Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting idea because also the, the way that they could then, I don't know how they would make all of this work, but like, you know, in the NBA, there's a set number in the collective bargaining agreement about how much revenue goes to the players. You know, like it's mm-hmm. 51% or 49% or whatever it is. Obviously, the number would be much lower for Hollywood right, than right, that. Right. But like setting that number and just saying like, we are going to have this pot of money from yeah. from Netflix and it's a percentage of it. And then that's going to be divvied up through this ranking that doesn't actually say only four fucking people in Iowa watched your thing. It says, you know, four times as many people watched it. I think that like that, right. that sort of gets closer to an actual solution to a lot of these hard problems. Yeah. No, I mean, I like again, I when I when I remember reading that from Sagan being like, oh, that's actually that's actually a very good workaround for all this, you know, and and look, obviously, there's still stuff to negotiate there. You know, SAG's not going to get two percent of streaming revenue because then the DGA and the WGA and IATSE are all going to want two percent as well. And then suddenly two percent becomes eight percent. And you're like, right. well, OK, that 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 doesn't work for anyone. But like, you know, uh, if if the if if you're just negotiating over a number that should be easier to solve than if you're negotiating over a, you know, kind of existential idea of what it means to count a view. Right. <laughs> Those never get that. That's the problem with all of these things is that when when they're arguing about philosophies, <laughs> it doesn't actually really get you close to solving, you know, the um, airplane strike. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, Ben, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Again, the name of your Substack is Calm Down. Yep, right? calmdownben.com, or just Google it. Just Google it. Uh, that'll that'll get you there. Do you have any Google ads? Or if you if somebody Googles Calm Down, does Calm Down Ben come up? No, but I, I might do it right now before this goes, uh, goes live. That's good. <laughs> um, all right, uh, Ben, thanks for being on the show. Uh, again, my name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark, and I will be back with another episode next week of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. See you guys then.